Good morning to all of you. It is a, a great morning to be together. Um, as I'm talking, if you have a Bible, you can turn back to 2 Samuel. We'll be diving in there again, chapter 12. Um, but uh, yeah, just a great Sunday to worship. And uh, Katie said, you know, I didn't know all these kids were going to be up here. Uh, the Holy Spirit definitely had a part in, uh, which I love that, creating our worship gathering and including many, many kids uh, as we think about things like safe families. And to all the volunteers, and especially Katie, thank you for being a church that does demonstrate the love of Christ to meet real, true needs in the world. Uh, it's one thing for a church to talk about that and even just throw money at that. It's an entirely different thing for people to step up to that and, and be uncomfortable and, and meet needs that are real. And so appreciate Katie's leadership in that and the whole team um, as a whole. So um, we are diving back into 2 Samuel after taking a couple weeks out of the book. Uh, and I'll give you a little background before we say our affirmation and read the text together. Um, Russell, Pastor Russell preached on this particular text three weeks ago. And I had intended uh, long before that, during that text, to recapture the last part of that uh, by a topic that uh, is addressed in there about infants that die um, before they have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so that's a tough passage that we'll uh, look at again and dive more deeply into what David was experiencing there over the loss of that child as he was judged by God for his sin. And so just know uh, this is a different message in that it's more topical. Uh, we'll use 2 Samuel as a launching point. Don't often preach that way, preach verse of the Bible. But this was something that I didn't feel like I could pass up uh, in the text itself. The text lends itself towards teaching. Uh, so it's a text that teaches us more about the answer to that question and, and truly more about the gospel and God's mercy. And so with that, we'll uh, recite our affirmation together. As you'll see on the screen, if you're new here, this is something we say before we read the word of God to center ourselves around the power of the spirit and the truth of this word. Let's say it together. Our pursuit is by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the Word of God, no matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King into eternity. Chapter 12, uh, as we know, is um, God's judgment on David uh, rebuking, Nathan goes and rebukes him for his sin of adultery and, and lying and deception and murder. Uh, and the judgment for that was his child uh, was not spared. Um, and so we'll pick up in verse 15 um, and then read through 23. And uh, verse 23 is really going to be the launching point for this message today. It says, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. With that, I invite you to pray. Uh, Pray that God would speak to your heart uh, and, and make his word known, his gospel, his grace, his mercy known to you in a most powerful way that you even would have faith like a child today. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Even as we read a difficult passage, maybe to understand in the judgment that came from your hand, Father, I pray that we know it as a mercy today, that we would know your grace and mercy that we would know the gospel and its richness, the wonder of Jesus Christ taking on sin and death on himself, our sin and death, so that all who trust in him might live. And Father, we know you're a good, good father. We know that you're compassionate. We know that you love the little children. Jesus himself, we heard from that. Let them come to me, he said. And so, Father, may we also love the little children and ourselves become like one of them in faith. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Uh, Many of you would know this, and it wouldn't surprise you that I didn't feel like I could skip over this text because this is an idea or question that would be near and dear to my heart. Not only do we have a child, man, I just can't ever get through it, I tell you. Not only do we have a child who to our knowledge, cannot cognitively understand and receive the gospel. Not only do we have that, but Carrie and I have also experienced the grief of miscarriage. And so we know, or at least we know our experience, the the grief that that produces when a child is conceived and then lost. We've experienced that. Many of you have experienced the same. In fact, this is a very common thing in our world. It's, as a doctor friend of mine says, it's not normal, but it is common. And so many have experienced loss, either neonatal in the womb or perinatal, children that have been born outside of the womb and then died or lost at a young age. And so it's a question that many in the church really don't answer because we're not quite sure. We don't really want to deal with that tough stuff. And yet I'm going to deal with it today. Perhaps you've lost a child like that because it's a sad reality of this broken world. And admittingly, I cannot begin to identify with the loss that a mother feels in that. So I want to say that right off the bat, that the grief that a mother feels in that is is unique. It's a kind of thing that brings about pain and grief, but it also brings about confusion. And where do we go with our confusions in the world? We go to the Bible. We go to God's Word to answer these questions. What happens, as you saw in your bulletin, to those who die in infancy? 
And when I say infancy, I'm also likening that to small children that can't comprehend the gospel or mentally, cognitively impaired children that can't fully understand the gospel. Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? Are they saved? Are they damned? This is a difficult and sensitive issue, I have no doubt, but one that we should seek an answer and a biblical one. Again, I normally don't teach topically like this, but many have asked over the years, and I couldn't let it pass through our series in 2 Samuel without readdressing it. And I would say, too, that this message is much more, as I said, to just bring an answer to that question. In fact, threefold, my hope is that for sure it will bring encouragement to many of you, especially parents, most especially mothers. Second, I also hope that it will help us understand that we may think many things in our opinions that we are often, are often drawn out from feelings, but we can only know what is truth, the Bible. I posed this question to a group of men that I mentored, and I said, do you think that children in infancy die before they're saved? Do you think they go to heaven? And they said, well, yeah. Like, do you know that from the scriptures? Not just do you feel like that's a good thing. And thirdly, as we cover this, I hope, and I really trust that this will happen, we will all have a greater understanding of the gospel for ourselves. We will rightly understand how anyone is saved and what God's grace and mercy are all about. So with that, let's jump in, and these are the three general truths and points here. Number one, there are difficult questions in life that are hard to definitively answer. We'll talk about that briefly Second, all humans are born into and are guilty of sin. No escaping that. And third, our only hope is in God's goodness and mercy for salvation. So with that, the first point, there are difficult questions in life that are hard to definitively answer. And this is really important because there are difficult questions that we face in life that we almost demand to have an answer to. And I start here because, as I said, many of our ideas uh, to difficult questions or opinions, they come from human understanding and not necessarily a godly one. We easily base our opinions on things that make sense to our world and that we would answer a certain way because it feels the most right. In fact, I just had a conversation, even as soon as yesterday, with one of my kids about creation and sin, coming from last Sunday, Easter, that we looked at the whole story of the gospel. And one of my children asked, well, I just don't understand, like, why didn't God stop Adam and Eve from sinning if he knew this would come into the world? Now, I gave some answers to that question, but I didn't also pretend to know all of the answers. And my challenge to my child was to say, you want to understand the world through a human lens. What you think would be good to do in that situation is not necessarily good. It's not necessarily what God would do. We try to understand God on human terms. That's how we created Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. We try to wrap our minds, get this, we try to wrap our minds around an infinite God. If we could understand God, would we not be God? Think about that. Our finite minds just do not know all of the things. We can know what he tells us about himself, we can know that, but we cannot fully understand him in all his works. That is far too great. That is far too great for us, and we need to approach this with that kind of humility. For example, our version of what is loving 
And as we come to this, this passage, what would be the most loving answer to that question? Our version of love, although we might have ideas about it, is not the most perfect and holy version of love. It simply is not perfect. It's stained with sin in this way. It's not the same as God's. And why, again, we wouldn't do something isn't enough to assume that God should operate the same way. So there must be this humility as we approach life and doctrine. Many people in the church have strong, I don't, I don't know if you knew this, this is, this is a newsflash, many people in the church have strong opinions about things that they do not know. One of the notable ones, as an example, and there are many, is eschatology or what will happen in the end times. There's much written about it for sure in the scriptures. We should study it and know it. But people divide over it. That which has not even happened. To hold your premillennial or millennial or postmillennial view of Christ's return so tightly that you will risk unity in the church over the gospel. Foolishness. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that you can't or shouldn't have a biblical perspective on that and many other things, by the way. But I am simply suggesting another newsflash. I'm going to whisper it so the other people don't hear, you may not be right. I'm just going to whisper it. I didn't know if everybody heard it. Now, if you said Jesus wasn't going to return at all, I would say, no, he said that. There are, there are doctrines which we can have hard lines about. You have to be really careful and humble, as I said. Jesus himself, excuse me, himself said that, but to know all the details of Revelation, the timing, you must be God. No, there are questions that are difficult. Now, the Bible claims this about itself, that the scriptures are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. We have all that we need, 2 Peter 1.3, for life and godliness. So everything you and I need to live life, to be successful in knowing God, enjoying Him, glorifying Him, and in salvation, we have from the scriptures. There are mysteries, yes. We don't get to know everything, which is why Deuteronomy 29, 29 is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. Memorize it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. There are secret things that belong only to God. There are revealed things written in here that do belong to us. And they belong to us so that we can be obedient to God. It's a great verse. Secret things belong to God. Revealed things belong to us. To keep in mind that we can fully know what we can know. Now on a topic like what we're looking at today, the Bible doesn't say a lot directly about the question I've posed. It's scant, but it does say some things. Some implicit and some explicit. And so more today than I probably would ask you. If you have a Bible, get it in your hands. If you need a Bible, they're back there because we'll be moving around using 2 Samuel as our launching point. Perhaps 2 Samuel, the text that I read, is one of the most convincing scriptures on the answer to the question. Now let me remind us, explain what is happening in David's world. David has sinned against God, and he recognized that. Against you only have I sinned. He acknowledges that his sin was not necessarily, although they were the, the victims, if you will, or the fallout from the sin against uh, Uriah and against his child even, they were against a holy God. 
He understands that. And God's revealing of that to him was through the prophet Nathan to say, because you have done this thing, committed adultery, there will be a consequence. All right? There was a lot of grace, as we saw at the end, but there will be a consequence. And the child that you have conceived with Bathsheba will die. And so in our text, David grieves this, as he should rightfully grieve his sin. The Lord afflicted the child, and this pushes David to go and fast. And his fasting is produced over these seven days. The seventh day, it says in verse 18, the child died, and the servants were afraid to tell David because he was grieving. He was upset, but they were more surprised in his attitude coming out of that news. Is he dead? Yes, he's dead. It says there that David rose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. Strange response from a man who has just lost a seven-day-old baby. He then went to his own house when he was asked, set food before him, he ate. Servants are confused. What is this thing? You fasted and wept while the child was alive, but now the child dies and you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious. But it's verse 23 that I want you to see. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He's acknowledging his human weakness, no control. I shall go to him but he will not return to me. Did you catch that? I shall go to him. David, something must have happened and something must have been known for David to have such a confidence that he would go to that child, that he would be able to see that child again, that this child who had never had an ideal uh, upbringing of learning about God's holiness and obedience and, and God's ways and obeying them, and in our modern New Testament, New Covenant version, never having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, somehow goes on. And David has a confidence in that, drawing some comfort, knowing that the lost child would be saved. If you have your Bible open, you can flip to Job 3. This, some of this will be on the screen here. Another text that's pretty convincing, if you know the story of Job, Job is afflicted by, by Satan. Satan approaches God, and only under God's care and control does God allow him to torment his servant Job. There's no one righteous like Job. Have at him. You just can't kill him. He takes all his family, his livestock, everything Job has, and by the time you get to Job, Job chapter 3, Job's fairly upset about this. In fact, righteous, but cursing the day of his birth cursing the day of his birth. If you read the first part, he is likening his, his attitude here is that he is saying, God, why was I even born? I would have been better off not to be born. And by the time you get to verse 11, he says it. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why, why was I not hidden as a stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and the, the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear the voice of a taskmaster, the small and greater there, and the slave is free from his master." These are two passages that would suggest that those who die in infancy are saved. 
David knows he will see this child again. Job laments about his birth and saying, if I would have never been born, then I would have been at rest. They go to God. Job, in fact, understands better that he is even spared, as he says, he longs for this day to have been eliminated, that he would be spared from the sinfulness of the world, a fallen world. One more text before we dive deeply in the problem of sin. Psalm 139, if you have a Bible, you can flip over there. It's not going to be on the screen. But it's a helpful text in giving us six truths about God and about life and his value of life and that he controls all things. I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. You can read it later, but I will say this in verses 1 through 4, and I'll read it. This first truth of the six, nothing happens in life or death without God ordaining it. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. In other words, God knows all of it before it even came to be. All of it. Nothing happens in life or death without God ordaining it. Second thing is he is actively involved in our life. Verses 5 and 6. You hem me in behind me before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it is high. I cannot attain it. Before me, around me, all around you. God is active in life. Number three, he will never lose sight of us. Verses 7 through 10. David acknowledges this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Anywhere he goes, God knows about it. And if you're here today, I'll say what I said last Sunday. You can never descend to a place farther than the reach of God, ever. So if you came in here like, I wonder if God loves me, he does. And he knows all about you. Truth number four in verses 11 and 12, he will never be limited in his knowledge no matter how dark it gets. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me to be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is a light with you. Truth number five, every detail, and this is hard for us, every detail of life has been ordained by God from beginning to end. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Every detail, every one of us created in the image of God, special, unique, he knew about it. You and I look at all of our faults all of the things we wish we could have been. And you need to hear Psalm 139. God did it this way, created you this way, because he cares about every detail of your life. He makes no mistakes. And verse 16, all the days of our life were written before they came to be. This is about destiny. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written And this is Hebrew, right? Every one of them. Did you hear the Hebrew? It means every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Every day of your life, God has known about. 
You and I like to think we make our own choices, and we do. We have free will. There's nothing in this teaching that's going to say we don't have the will to exercise, but it's not certainly as free as we think God knows about it. That is too high and too lofty for us to understand. The fact is God is the author of life and of death. He's sovereign over all of it. Now, I want to move on to the second point because it captures, starts to capture the argument against the rationale that infants are saved. Because how can they be saved if they've never responded to the gospel? This would only be possible, right? We'd say if infants have no sin. Well, this can't be true because the Bible doesn't teach that. We go to the word for that, which is the second point. All humans are born into and are guilty of sin. That means everyone who has ever been conceived other than the person of Jesus Christ is with sin. There's no one else. Infants, children, everyone. And to start to deal with this topic, the question we brought before you today, we need to answer really two questions. One, who qualifies as an infant or child? You know, we talk about that in the church. What's the age of accountability? That's what we say in the church. What does what, what, what age does a child recognize their own sin, commit sin? Is it three? I've said it from up here. When, when your two-year-old says that word no, granted you've probably said it around them, they don't need to learn to say that, right? But acknowledging their sin may be a little bit different. Is it three? Is it six? Or is it 12? We simply don't know. There's not a biblical standard for that. And you often hear that question asked, but that's not really a question you should ask because we're not talking about an age of accountability. Get this in your mind. We're talking about a condition of accountability. Get the words age out of your discussion. We're talking about condition, not age. The better question, who qualifies then in our discussion as an infant or child who dying is saved, who dyingly instantly goes to heaven? Who are we talking about? The answer, and this is not mine, this is from another theologian, good definition, it is those who have not yet reached sufficient mature understanding in order to comprehend convincingly the issues of law and grace, sin and salvation. I'm going to read that one more time. Those who have not yet reached sufficient mature understanding in order to comprehend convincingly the issues of law and grace, sin and salvation. This is certainly an infant in a womb no matter the age and days or months. This is certainly an infant at birth. This is certainly a small child. This is certainly a mentally impaired adult at any age. Anyone in a condition who cannot sufficiently understand and comprehend so as to be fully convinced of the issues of law and grace and sin and salvation. That's the first question. Who qualifies? The second question is this. Are are all children conceived in sin? And are all children truly sinners? It's hard to fathom that as we look at babies and we look at young people, even that stood up to here today, although I'm guessing the ones that stood up here today, their parents may enlighten you later about that. But all the same, many in our world, and this is a, a, a doctrine in the world, believe that we're born good. That every, that every person is born good and they learn to sin. That's Pelagianism, and it's a heresy for hundreds of years, refuted, a heresy, even found today some in forms of Arminian theology. But the Bible is clear, for starters, and I just challenge you to think about this in this way. If infants didn't have sin, it's just a question to ponder, 
why would any of them ever die? Think about it. If they didn't have sin, why would they ever physically die? For death was the curse, or physical death was the curse of sin. So if they never had sin, they should never go on to die. That's the most obvious implication, but the scriptures are most clear. In Psalm 51, 5, David writes this, an obvious choice to answer this question. Surely I was sinful at birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the very moment, we believe as a church body that life begins at conception. And David is saying here that at conception, I was conceived in sin. Or texts like Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. I'll flip over there for a moment here. We cover this, you know this well. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power in the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, that's everyone, lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were na- by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we know, of course, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Or a text like Romans 5.12, I won't cover the whole thing, but we read this, even covered it on Easter Sunday. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The Bible is clear. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, 1, for there is no one good, no, not one, no one who seeks God. Infant, child, adult, doesn't matter. Jesus himself was the one and only who never sinned. To add infants to that list would actually take away the doctrine of Christ's holiness, being the only human to have no sin. But then how do you reconcile sinful birth with the gospel. Here's where some of you, maybe some people, maybe some of you would jump in and say, well, if they're all sinners and they're born into sin, then they're all guilty because the Bible also teaches that, which means they're all condemned to hell. And all the little ones who die by the millions and billions because they are sinful deserve death and hell. And that's where they go. And since they can't repent of their sin, and since they can't cry out to God for his mercy and grace, they can't believe in Jesus Christ. They all go to hell. There are people who believe that, maybe even in this room. And this is sort of an implication drawn out of your doctrine of total depravity, that because all who are born, born in total depravity, deserve hell, they get hell. Now, I believe in total depravity. I believe what the Bible teaches, that we are all stained with sin, that all of us are in the same boat when it comes to condemnation. But I also do not believe that infants who die go to hell. Why? Let me give you two reasons. The Bible and the gospel. Listen to this. Only, and I say only, biblical, reformed, gospel-centered soteriology, and that's a big word for the salvation, doctrine of salvation, can account for the fact that fallen, sinful, guilty, depraved children who die with no spiritual merit, die with no religious merit, die with no moral merit on their own, can be welcomed by a holy God into eternal glory. Only pure, biblical, reformed, gospel-centered theology can allow for that because only the purest theology believes that salvation is all by grace. 
It is all by grace. How are you saved if you are here today and you proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus? By grace. That's it. You say, well, then so God just takes all the babies to heaven and he can do that? All these sinful creatures and they don't have to do anything? That's just grace? That's right. That's grace. How are you saved? By the law? You want, you want grace for yourselves, but law for babies? That makes no sense, right? Listen, Christian, you had, and this is, I want you to hear this. Like, I need to hear this today. You had no more to do with your salvation than a helpless infant. You need to know that. That's why the truest and purest theology is that theology which understands that salvation is by grace alone. And maybe that's what Jesus had in his mind as he, in part, when he said, you who go to heaven, go to heaven as little children. Is there a better illustration of salvation by grace than the salvation of a helpless infant? Is there a better one? But in our theology, in our world, we like to say, well, we choose God. It's our choice. It's up to us. And if I do, then I had some part in it. <laughs> helpless infant. That's what we are when we come into this place and celebrate the gospel. Which leads me to my last and final point, and I hope you hear this. Our only hope, and I should even change it to your only hope if you're here today, is God's goodness in God's mercy for salvation. Psalm 119.68 says this, You are good and you do good. We are all dependent on God's goodness to do good as he sees fit by his goodness. If he sees it as good and right. And the thing about it is we have no control. You and I want control. We spend our whole lives. Why does this happen to us? Why did it happen this way? Why did you have to do this? Why did you have to take this? Who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious, David says. Instead, he did this. And God grabs a hold of his heart and says, do you still think I'm good? And David goes to the altar and he worships because he does what is good. Our only hope is that God is good to us in mercy and grace to sinners. And this is not just true of infants and small children or even adults who are mentally challenged. It's true of every one of us in this room. There's only one question that really matters as we attempt to answer this question before us today that I posed, the argument, if you will. If infants are saved when they die, which I believe they are, by what means are they saved? If there are those who are born or not yet born but conceived are in a condition of not having a capability to understand matters of salvation, if they are saved when they die, by what means? What means are they saved? I'll tell you what means. By the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the means. Because that is the only means that anyone can be saved. I don't have time to get into infant baptism or any other work in regard to saving baptism that has tried to be salvifically applied to children or people. People have historically, in that way, baptized babies as a way to impart grace. That's why people come to say, hey, can you baptize my baby? There's this way of, it's a safety net. I want them, you to do this as a parent or you to do this as a pastor so that they can get into heaven. There, there's a work there, if that's the way. There's no way that that can be applied to save. The Bible is clear that, that baptism itself is not even necessary for salvation, although it is important 
It doesn't save. No work can save you. Ephesians 2 tells us this. So listen close. God has predestined all he wills into salvation, and I believe including those in infancy. And that salvation is by his sovereign choice through grace alone. Though all infants deserve, listen, eternal judgment because of their guilt and corruption, their sins were paid for by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross in which he bore the wrath of God. Not only, listen to this, in which he bore the wrath of God, not only for all those who believe, but for even those who didn't believe or couldn't, I should say, believe. I really do believe that the only ones that can understand that are ones that will look to the Bible and say, God, would you teach me? And then only that kind of sovereign reformed theology can grasp the redemption of little ones because it's all sovereignty and all grace. But you say they didn't, you still say they didn't believe. That's the one thing is needed for salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Acts 16, 31. How can they be saved if you don't believe? Sounds like you're saying there is another way. And I'm just going to land this plane by looking to Revelation 20, two verses. Because Revelation 20 shows us that we're all saved by grace. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I don't think it'll be up on the screens, but I'll read it for us. All grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. All grace because of the work of Jesus Christ. And our damnation, condemnation, is by works. How do I know that? Because whenever you go to the judgment seat in Revelation 20, and you see verses 11 here and 12, in the last chapter of the Bible, what better place to go to the last chapter of the Bible for this question, right? The final matter, if you will. Here's the great white throne and its final judgment for all the ungodly of all history. And there's this one sitting up on the throne from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Obviously, the great judge here, God has committed that judgment to Christ. It tells us in John chapter 5, there is Christ. He's the great judge, capital J, the one on the throne. And in verse 12 here, it says, I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged. From the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their what? Their deeds, their works. Yes, the greatest sin that condemns is unbelief. Jesus said that in John chapter 8. Because you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins, and where I go, you will not come. Jesus said that harsh truth. But unbelief is always linked to disobedience, which is works or deeds. MacArthur says it this way, you're condemned if you don't believe, so we're there. And when you don't believe, guess what? You don't obey. MacArthur didn't say, guess what? He's smarter than that. I added that part. <laughs> so there's a life of evil works that are recorded. The books record it. God is a complete record of every sin of every sinner who has ever lived. And it is on the basis of those records that they will be condemned. It is the sins that sinners commit that Christ to cover that record, right? But listen, as I close this up, infants and children don't have that record. Deuteronomy 139 is an interesting verse. You'll see it on the screen here. It tells us that children have no knowledge. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. 
Romans 1.20 would be another scripture there. For his invisible attributes, we learn about general revelation, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. Those who perceive general revelation are without excuse. They should know that God is creator. They should have that perception about them, but yet we know some have never the chance and they wouldn't be able to perceive. So do they have an excuse, if you will? They are not like us who can openly reject the gospel here today while our, while our hearts are hardened. Infants in those challenged cognitively can't perceive. And MacArthur continues, infants who die then have never had anything written in the record because they never committed the deeds, conscious deeds of rebellion and iniquity. God knows at what point they become accountable Infants who die then have been protected by God's providence from committing those deeds, those responsible acts of sin by which they would be condemned. And listen, there is no place in the Bible where judgment is based on any other grounds than the deeds of sin. It is true they're sinful by nature, but the account against them that condemns us is in their deeds. God doesn't charge people with actual sins until they commit them. That's a mouthful. I know you have questions. Salvation then, listen to this as we close, is by grace completely apart from works. Damnation, condemnation, is by works completely apart from grace. All of us are utterly dependent upon the grace and mercy of Christ. And if you are here today and you can understand and you can perceive what you've heard, because of your sin, you need that grace and mercy. And you can be saved by it. You can place your faith in Christ today to look to him by faith and to receive his grace and mercy as a desperate sinner, a humble, desperate sinner who deserves the punishment of God. But because of Jesus Christ at the cross, you can be saved. I want to just read this paragraph and then be done today. And it's as an encouragement to many of you. And I'll get emotional because I know many of you have struggled in this. And you've wondered about this. Dear one, if you have a little one that dies, rejoice. Count not your human loss, count your eternal gain. Count not that child as having lost, but having gained. Having passed briefly through this life, untouched by the wicked world, only to enter into glory and grace. The true sadness, and hear this, friends, should be over those children of ours who live and reject the gospel. Don't sorrow over your children in heaven. Sorrow over your children on earth, that they should come to know Christ and keep teaching them the hope of the gospel. We, like David, one day, they will not return to us, but we shall go to them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good, good father. And I have no doubt that this message, as it even brings me, brings about sadness to many in this room. But I pray that you would bring comfort 
to everyone who has ever lost a baby by miscarriage, who has ever lost a small child that was born, either stillborn or born and died years later. Father, for every child that maybe is, as we would say, different. And there's this innocence about them that we can't quite place our finger on. God, you are gracious. And I pray that you bring comfort to our grief. I pray, especially as we've looked at the value of life and family and children, that we would be like you in that caring deeply for children and families. Father, help us to develop your heart of comfort and goodness and mercy. And Father, help us to trust in the gospel. We have no hope without Jesus Christ. We have nothing without your grace and mercy. God, your mercy is more than we could ever fathom. And for anyone here that is foolish enough to believe they have something to offer you, they're just wrong. We have nothing good in us to offer you, and you alone, by your grace and mercy, sent your son to die a sinner's death for our sin, that all who trust in him would be saved, and all who couldn't trust in him. And so, Father, would you reveal your mercy to us again, even to the one who has never trusted Christ in this room, who, having heard the gospel, could know it, that they would not harden their heart against you that they would turn from their sins and knowing Jesus paid for those sins, confess with their mouth and believe in their heart. And God, would you give them salvation as they cry out for forgiveness today? Would they know, as your word says, if if we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive and you will secure us in the palm of your hand. Nothing could snatch us away. And so, Father, we worship you. May we, like David, sinners, broken, desperate sinners who come in here broken and confused. May we worship you today, even worship you in all the things that are heavy in our lives, all the things we wish were different, all the things we've cursed you for, that we would worship you as a good, good father, a holy God who knows what's best, that you would rain rain down your grace and mercy on us, God. Father, you are a loving God and we praise you today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.